Heavenly Father, you are great. You are awesome. You're so worthy of our affection and our adoration. And what we need uh, right now more than anything else in the world, Father, is for you to, to come and to take the realities that are in this book and, and to press them into our souls so that uh, we're not just hearing words from pages, but that we're seeing a glimpse into the glory of God. And we're seeing and being caught up in your purposes and your plans, not only for our lives, but for the people around us, Father God. I pray that you'd help us look as we start to, to wind down this book of Colossians, that you'd help us look at the great realities that are our anchors throughout this book as Paul resurfaces them and, and get our eyes fixed on Jesus and on his glory and on his worth and in our need to hold on to him as, fast, as hard and as fast as we can um, and his gracious, loving kindness in holding on to us and not letting go. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do today, uh, grab them and turn to Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. And you will notice now that we are very, very close to the end of this book. I say that recognizing that we've been here since September of last year, and so thank you for your patience. It has been an awesome, awesome journey, and we've just got a few weeks left. David will be talking to us next week about um, a few verses here, and then we'll have one more sermon at the end of November, um, and I'm excited about these and where we're going next. So um, as we pass through the end of this book, the final greetings, we're noticing something here. We're seeing that, that Paul's final greetings aren't superfluous. They're not just added on for the sake of it. There is real meaning here that draws our attention back to things that he's told us throughout the course of the letter. So the last year we've learned a lot of things. Paul is now resurfacing the things that are most significant. And so the question we've got every week as we've been in the final greeting is what is he going to show us today? What is he going to represent from the book of Colossians? And a better question might be today, who is he going to resurface for us to get a closer look at? So let's look at verse 12 here. Verse 12 says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So that's the answer to the question, who are we looking at today? We're looking at a man named Epaphras. And if you've been with us over the last year, this is not the first time you've heard his name. Paul has repeatedly brought up Epaphras in his ministry, and we've seen that he's very central to not only the reason that this letter was sent, but he is central to the reason that there is a Colossian church to begin with. If you go to chapter 1, verse 5, listen to what Paul says about Epaphras. He's talking to the Colossian church. He says, of this you, Colossae, have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, 
He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul's telling the Colossian church, I know that you learned the gospel from Epaphras. And he refers to Epaphras as fellow servant. And if you were with us, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, we looked at this word servant. This word servant is in the Greek, doulos, which is more literally translated as slave. He is a fellow slave to Christ Jesus. And Paul is saying this at the beginning of his letter, and he's saying this in verse 12, chapter 4, at the end of his letter. So it's very critical that we see this about Epaphras. This is who he is. He is completely committed, completely dedicated to Jesus Christ. And he also says, Paul here, he's made known to us your love in the Spirit, the Colossians' love in the Spirit, which is Paul's way of saying, he's made it very clear to me that you guys are genuine Christians. This love that you have is from God. It is a genuine love from the Spirit of God. And uh, the interesting thing about Epaphras, looking back at, and let's go back to to the other slide here. Uh, There we go. Uh, Looking back at verse 12, Paul says, um, he calls him a a fellow slave to Christ Jesus, but he also says um, that that he's not part of Paul's entourage. He's not part of the Jewish men that are with him, the men of the circumcision, which we looked at last week. He's not part of, of this group of people that are following him. Epaphras, according to verse 12, is one of them. He's one of the people in Colossae, one of the Colossian Christians. And what this means is that Epaphras must have encountered the gospel at some point, whether a lot of theologians believe it was in Ephesus, a hundred miles west. We don't know for sure. All we do know is that when he returned to his home city, he brought with him the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he told everyone that he saw it there. And the result was the Colossian church. The Colossian church um, and this network of churches that Paul mentions here, the church in Laodicea and the church in Hierapolis. And so we see that this man, Epaphras, was working hard for them. He was serving these neighboring churches. And uh, Paul even says here, I bear witness to this. He's worked hard for you churches, for, for, uh, for Laodicea, for Hierapolis, and for the Colossian believers. And um, the reason that Paul can bear witness to this is because Epaphras is right next to him. Epaphras is with him giving this greeting. Which begs the question, if Epaphras went to Paul and Paul is writing this letter, why he didn't go back? And it begs the question, why would Epaphras go to Paul to write this letter? And let's answer that one first, actually. The entire reason that Epaphras has come to Paul, and if you've been with us for the last year, you know this because we've gone over this a few times, is that there is an encroaching threat to the Colossian church. There is a new teaching that has cropped up, either infiltrated the church or it's on the outside and it's about to come in. And this teaching says this. It says that the gospel of Jesus Christ is great. That Jesus is awesome. However, they are not sufficient to have a fullness of understanding of God. They are insufficient. You need more than Jesus and you need more than the gospel, and it would claim that there are certain traditions, certain beliefs, certain things that you can do, ascetic practices, that would give you the fullness. And the entire reason that the the book of Colossians is written, the entire reason for this letter is that Paul's main contention here is that the supremacy of Jesus Christ is so unfathomably great 
that Jesus doesn't just possess fullness. He doesn't just offer fullness. He is the fullness that the Colossian church needs. There is no need for teachings and traditions and all these different practices to be added on to Jesus. Jesus already is the fullness, and that's Paul's main point in the letter. But why didn't Epaphras bring this back to the Colossians himself? This would have been important for him to bring back. What is he doing here? And so, uh, two weeks ago, we found out it was Tychicus and Onesimus who brought this letter back, and um, Paul or Epaphras remains behind, and that's why he's part of this greeting. Now, we don't know conclusively why he did this, but we do know uh, we've got a hint in the book of Philemon where Paul describes Epaphras as a fellow prisoner. Now, whether that means that Epaphras somehow got in trouble with the law and got imprisoned for preaching the gospel, or whether that means that Paul is just mildly associating with this man in prison as being someone who's stuck behind with him, we don't know. What is clear is that he is more than willing to suffer and be maligned for the name of, of Christ Jesus along with Paul. He is more than willing to do that, even if it means him being in a cell with a man bound in chains or wherever Paul was. He is willing to do that. He has no problem being numbered with Paul in prison. This is a small thing for Epaphras to do, which is awesome to see. Um, now, Paul tells us that as he's there, like if he's not going back, why is he, go, why is he staying? What is he doing when he stays with you, Paul? And Paul answers that. He says he's always struggling on your behalf, Colossians, in his prayers. That's verse 12. Always struggling. He's always praying. It's as though Paul turns around and sees Epaphras once again in the corner pleading with God for these people. And the image he's got here isn't a casual, quiet time in a closet. This isn't, no offense if that's what you do uh, when you pray, this isn't a, a nice prayer devotion with a coffee. It says he is struggling. In the Greek, this is agonizomai. And we get the English word agony from this. He is struggling, contending, fighting for the Colossians in this intense labor of a prayer. He isn't dropping a quick note to God. This is not casual for him. He is fighting for God's grace to be worked out in the Colossian believers, he needs these prayers to be answered. And so there is in him a kind of holy desperation. And so the question, really the main question we have for today is, what is Epaphras struggling in prayer for? If, he's will, if this man who's a slave to Christ Jesus, who loves these people, is willing to struggle in prayer for these friends of his, these fellow believers, what is it? What's the one thing, for example, that Paul chooses to mention out of anything that Epaphras has said or prayed about to the Colossians as he sends this letter? And we see it here. Verse 12 says, his prayers are that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. That you may stand. This is what Epaphras is pleading to God for. And he says that there's two results of this standing. This standing will bring you as a Christian into maturity. It will make you complete. Completedness in Christ Jesus, a maturity in Christ Jesus. And the second is that they would have a full assurance of the will of God. 
These are the two attributes that arise from a Christian standing firm. Christian maturity and confidence in God's will. Confidence in what he's about to do. And this is what Epaphras desires for these people more than anything else. That they would be mature in Christ and that they would know the will of God. Now, I want you to see that Epaphras isn't the only person who wants this for the Colossian believers. This is so important that it is laden throughout the entire letter. I want to look at Colossians 1, verses 9 through 11. It isn't just Epaphras that's praying this for the Colossians. This isn't just one incident, one sidebar. Look at the language in Paul's prayer for the Colossian church. We looked at this almost a year ago. It says, And so from the day we heard, Paul's talking to the Colossians, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Then he says, being strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So Paul is asking a variety of things here, but really this is the same prayer. He's asking that God would fill the Colossians with a knowledge of his will so that they could walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, so that they would bear fruit and they would look like Jesus, which is exactly what Christian maturity is. That's what it looks like to stand mature. And Toward the end of this prayer, we see that Paul is asking for the Colossians to be strengthened by the the glory of his might, or glory of God's might. And so what's the reason that he wants them to be strengthened? Is it to to showboat? Is Is it to garner a reputation, do a lot of really cool things? No. He says here that it is to be able to endure with patience and joy. Christian endurance is what Paul is pleading with God for in this opening prayer. He wants them to stand. And so that's not just his prayer. Um, As we mentioned earlier, this letter is, is written to combat this new teaching that's encroaching on the Colossian community. That's the entire purpose of this letter. And so in order to combat it, the entire press of this letter is that they would stand firm. Paul is fighting in this letter so that the Colossians wouldn't be swept away by these new teachings. They wouldn't be discouraged by these new teachings or try to supplement and fall prey to them. He's he's fighting for them to stand firm. And one of the clearest statements of Paul's efforts in this letter for the Colossians is in chapter 1, verse 28. It's a long passage, but I want you to listen closely to what Paul's already told the Colossians about his ministry to them and about his desire that they stand firm. Colossians 1, verse 28, it says, Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know, Colossians, how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach, get this, all the riches of full assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is why he's telling them this, this next part. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Firmness of your faith in Christ. So I hope you notice some of the, some of the parallels in just this brief section. In verse 28, he says, my goal, my, my, my whole purpose is to present you mature in Christ Jesus, which is exactly what Epaphras is praying for, that the Colossians would be mature and complete in Christ Jesus, that they would lack nothing in him and des- never desire to seek to add anything to him. And the second outcome is also here. Verse 2, it says that Paul wants them to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, something he refers to as the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In other words, I want your fullest assurance to arise from your understanding of God and his purposes in Christ Jesus, the knowledge of God's will. So Paul and Epaphras are very much on the same page. The entire letter of Colossians is on the same page with Paul's, or with Epaphras' prayer. And we even see that both of these guys are struggling for this church in their prayers, struggling in their ministries. It says, Paul says, for this these things I just mentioned, I toil, struggling with all Christ's energy that he powerfully works in me. And then in verse 1, he says again, I want you to know, I want you to know, Colossians, how great a struggle I have for you. So this is a big deal for Paul to communicate how important, how significant it is in his own ministry, in his own pleading with God, and for Epaphras in his own ministry as well. It's huge. And then Paul closes this passage by saying, I am rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Firmness of your faith in Christ. This is what he wants for them. This is what he desires for them. And it really is another way of saying, I want you to stand firm, Colossians. I don't want you to bend I don't want you to cave in. I don't want you to fold. I don't want you to shift from the gospel. I want you to stand firm. That's the heart of this letter. That's the the main purpose and desire in Paul in writing this, is that they would see Jesus in such a way, they would be captured by his glory and his worth, that nothing could knock them over. Not a single thing in the world can knock them over. Not false teaching, not persecution, not suffering, not sickness, nothing is going to cause you to fall. Stand firm. This is what Paul and Epaphras are pleading with God for, what they're exhorting the Colossian Christians to do. And I think when we read this, we can see the significance in the context. I mean, I just laid out what was going on in the church. It's important for these guys to stand firm. But oftentimes, I feel like when we read a passage like this in Scripture— We um, can see the significance in the context, but we just recognize it as a part of the Christian life, as just like a theological trinket that we have on the side, or maybe a nice-to-have. Standing firm in faith is just something that we should do, but it's, it's not. Standing firm in faith is essential to the Christian life, and it is constantly repeated throughout scriptures, especially in the New Testament. I'm going to rattle off four of them right now. Philippians 4.1, 1 
Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crowned, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Or 2 Corinthians 1.24, Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. 1 Thessalonians 3.8, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And then you guys will know this one, some of you by heart. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Then Paul says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. This is huge to Paul. This is essential to Paul. Having done all to stand firm. This isn't a sidebar. This isn't a peripheral thing. This is at the center of Christian life and it is what it means to believe. And this is just one word, stand. That The theme of Christian endurance, the theme of perseverance of the saints is written throughout all of scripture. It is very difficult for me to overemphasize this because it's just everywhere you look. There is a testament to this in scripture. It's what the Christian is called to do. What we indeed must do if we are Christians is to stand firm, to endure, and to in the end conquer. I want you to listen to Jesus speaking to one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Revelation 3.21. Listen to his words here. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. This is so important for us to feel. We have to feel this verse. This is not a metaphor. This is not abstract. This is reality. There is a throne of ultimate authority at the top of the universe. There is nothing greater than this. There is nothing more powerful than this. And the Christian, us, are called to sit in it with Jesus Christ. That's the call on our life, is to be brought up in there to a place of ultimate authority, to the one who conquers, who stands firm to the end, who doesn't give up, to him, to her, I will grant to sit on my throne with me. The highest throne in the universe. There is no greater authority than this. And so this truth about standing firm, this truth about Christian endurance is the one that Paul is bringing before us today. And the question I think we have is a really practical question. How in the world do we do this? How do we conquer? How do we endure? How do we stand firm? This isn't clearly a passive download. This isn't a magic trick by God. There is a doing here because when we know this because Paul repeatedly commands to us and to the church and exhorts us to hold fast and not to let go. For example, Colossians 1.21. After the Christ hymn, He presents these passages here. Listen to this. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, 
Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. This verse is huge. I'm not going to undersell this verse. Literally, he's presenting eternity, hanging on words, if indeed. If indeed. They're not an accident. They are critical. Paul wants us to feel the weight of that. He doesn't want us to ignore it. Paul is saying here that though we as unbelievers were alienated and hostile in mind towards God, though we were in rebellion against God by doing evil deeds, nevertheless, Jesus Christ has reconciled us to God through his own body. This is what the cross accomplished. And his desire is to present us holy and blameless if indeed we continue in the faith. If indeed we are stable and we are steadfast and if we don't shift from the hope of the gospel. In other words, Paul's saying, stand firm. Don't let go of Jesus. Do not let go of Jesus. It is the difference between shame in glory. It is the difference between being a conqueror with Christ and sitting on his throne for eternity and being cast out from his presence. Everything hangs on this verse, which is why you can see when Paul and Epaphras talk about their posture towards God when it comes to pleading for the Colossians and for all the churches to stand firm is a struggle in a toil. They are not playing games with this. You get this image, and you don't really know where they were. Paul could have been on house arrest. He could have been in a prison. We don't know for sure. You get an image of Epaphras weeping for these believers, that in pleading with them that God would cause these men and women who he loves to stand firm and not give up, which is sobering. Because it definitely underscores the eternity that hangs on it, but it at all, it, it's also a, a massive sign of hope. And the reason it's incredibly hopeful is this. Paul never says that we are the ultimate reason we stand firm in the end. He never says that. Paul never says that we are the ultimate reason, ultimate reason that we hold fast to the gospel. He never says that we're the ultimate reason that we can endure in the end. He never says that. In fact, the very reason that he and Epaphras are praying to God for this is though he knows that we are commanded to do this, he's commanded. Though he knows that we must obey that command, ultimately it is God who will make us stand in the end. Romans 14.4 says it very clearly. Paul says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. Why? For the Lord is able to make him stand. Praise be to God for verses like this. It is critical for us to feel the weight of the if indeed in Colossians 1.23. For us to really be able to enjoy the glory of Romans 14.4. There's no way we can enjoy that glory. That the Lord is able to make us stand if we don't feel the weight of that if indeed. This doesn't mean that God flips a switch. This doesn't mean that God does some sort of mind control. Right now, as you hear the command, stand firm Christian, 
the God of the universe, in his command, in his promises to you, is cultivating and preparing your heart to desire to stand firm in the end so that you trust him and you refuse to let go, no matter what hits your life, no matter what kind of hardness, what kind of difficulty you're going through right now, you lay hold of him and you say, I'm not letting go. And I want you to think about the implications of what this means. This is, this is huge. The act of Christian perseverance through suffering, through persecution, through sickness, through whatever you can conceive of, isn't just the act of a man. It is the act of God in you. It is a miracle that we stand firm. It is a miracle from God. You're the one doing it. Don't get me wrong. You are the one standing firm through failure, through broken relationships, through suffering, through persecution, whatever it might be, you're the one standing firm, but ultimately it is God in you. We hold fast to Christ because God is laying hold of us through the gospel and he refuses to let go of us. Now, I want to make sure this is clear. Make no mistake about it. We are the actions of living human beings through obedience are standing firm, but it is a miracle from the hand of God. Every ounce of strength, every ounce of delight we have in him, every desire we have to say, I'm not going to let go, I'm not going to let go, comes from him. Which is where I want to spend the rest of our time today because I, I would imagine for a lot of us, for me, this is true, this feels really loose and really abstract. It's a nice idea, but I don't feel it applicable to my life immediately. Jeremy, you're telling me I must hold fast, I must stand firm, but somehow God's going to do that. He's holding fast to me. That's what's going to cause me to stand firm. And so the question I want to ask here is, is what is it about the hope of the gospel, which is what Paul says we need to hold on to in Colossians 1.23, what is it about the hope of the gospel that would cause us to stand? What is it in the hope of the gospel, in the gospel and the hope that causes us to stand? Well, in order to answer that question, I want to go back in time. I want to leave Epaphras on his knees praying in AD 60, 30 or so years after Jesus died and rose and went to heaven. And I want to go back a few thousand years earlier to the banks of the Red Sea where we find the people of Israel are trapped. They have uh, escaped their slavers, and now their slavers are pursuing them. The Egyptian empire has unleashed its entire army to hunt down and destroy every last Hebrew person who left. An entire war machine is on one side, and a seemingly impassable sea is on the other And for the people of Israel, their doom is very clear. There's no way out of this. This is impossible. They fled from slavery only to be viciously hunted down by their captors, and they probably will all die for leaving or be captured and brought back into slavery. Listen to Exodus 14.10. It says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. We need to think carefully about what they're saying. We really need to think carefully about what they're saying because this is not what we do. This is not how we respond. This right here is what it looks like to not continue in the faith. This is what it looks like to refuse to be stable, to refuse to be steadfast. This is what it looks like to shift from the only hope that they have. They say we would be better off as slaves. This is a tragedy. We would be better off as slaves. It's a tragedy because many professing Christians may not say this with their lips, but they act like it and they feel like it and they exist in a kind of slavery because they refuse to believe that they've been set free. And Paul would say to them something like Galatians 5.1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He says, Christ has set us free, therefore, stand firm. And so what I want to do is I want to listen very closely to the words of Moses to the people of Israel after they've said this to him. With their faith faltering big time. And I want to hear what Moses says. What does God through Moses say? Ephesians 14, 13 through 14. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. What a glorious line is that. Your job is to close your mouth and watch me work. Because when you close your mouth and you stop talking like they were talking here, it proves that your only hope is in God. I don't have any other solutions here. All I have is God and what he can accomplish. And that is the essence of what it means to stand firm. It is the essence of what it means not to shift from the hope of the gospel. To fix your eyes on the salvation of the Lord. Moses says, fear not, stand firm, and see that's, that's our role in this, is looking at God and what he can accomplish. And it is no different for us thousands of years later. Stand firm and see. But the salvation we fix our eyes on isn't God parting the Red Sea and letting us walk through on dry ground. Something much bigger than that. It isn't us crossing a body of water. It is, in fact, a cross with a man on it. There isn't a sea between us and our salvation. There isn't actually an infinite divide between our sinfulness and our unworthiness and what it would look like for us to be reconciled to the living God. An infinite divide. And the only way that that reconciliation can happen, any kind of reconciliation can happen, is if the Son of God dies. That should give you some kind of understanding of the infinite divide between us. 
a, a God, our, a living God, had to die in order to do this. Jesus didn't just push back the waves so that we could cross. He was consumed by them and dropped to the bottom of the sea and took all of them on them so that we could be free. And that is what we look to. So when Paul says, don't shift from the hope of the gospel, he means keep your eyes on Jesus and what he accomplished. Keep your eyes on the promise, the hope of being with him forever. And keep your heart anchored in the truth that if God was willing to give up his only son, if he was willing to give up his son to reconcile us, then there is nothing in the world that could separate us from his love. Nothing. He's already given up his own son, the greatest thing in the world. This is what it looks like to stand firm. This is what it looks like to hold fast. That we would press as deep as we can into the reality of the gospel and into the glory of Jesus Christ and that we would treasure him above everything else so that in treasuring him, he becomes the source of every ounce of spiritual strength, every ounce of delight that we have, and we will never need to look anywhere else for it. We will be able to stand firm knowing that we have everything in him. So in a few minutes, we're going to worship here. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus, I would invite you to participate in communion. And I, I really would ask that you take a moment before you take the elements and consider the cost of us being able to stand firm. Consider and recognize that every ounce of your strength in the end, every ounce of your endurance in trials came from God through Jesus in his sacrifice, and that you would fix your eyes on that. But before we worship here, I want to read one final passage from the end of Paul's life. And the reason I want to read this to you is because I want to encourage you. I really do want to encourage you. Um, not only for today, not only for tomorrow or for five weeks from now or five years from now, I want to encourage you when you get a call from the doctor that you don't want to get. I want to encourage you when you hear news about your health or someone you love that feels impossible to receive. I want to help you when you say something about Jesus and you are shamed, fired, whatever. I want to help you in that moment right now. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to read a passage from Scripture about Paul, who is for sure facing execution. He knows it. His days are numbered. And he is describing to Timothy why he stood firm in the end. He's telling him, listen to what he says here. And I want you to see how his strength doesn't come up from nothing. His strength comes from someone who is standing firm. Listen to this. 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 17. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Paul says, the Lord stood by me. What an awesome thing to say. What an awesome thing to say. This isn't poetry. This isn't poetry. This isn't a figure of speech. Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, 
stood by Paul as he heard his sentence. And in that moment, he strengthened him. And I want to encourage you today because no matter what you're facing right now, and I know some people in this room are facing heavy stuff, whatever you're facing right now, no matter the struggle or the weakness or the disease or whatever trauma you are walking through right now or tomorrow or 50 years from now, this promise isn't exclusive to Paul. This isn't just for him. Paul is communicating this through Timothy in the Ephesian church for us. He's telling us so that we would take heart because regardless when it happens, whether tomorrow or decades from now, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, I can promise you for sure, for certain, the Lord will stand by you. He will stand by you and he will strengthen you so that you will stand firm in the faith and you will never shift from the hope of the gospel. It's his promise to us. Matthew 28, he says, he will be with us to the end of the age. He will be with us always. He will never forsake us. This is his promise to us if we belong to him and he will never break that promise. He will never break it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's two words, stand firm. It's two words. But it is so important for us to feel them. Even in my speaking of them, I recognize that that words alone can't communicate the reality of what you desire from us and what you will give to us in that final hour what we must pursue with every ounce of strength in our being, and what we can be confident that you will provide because we trust in you. Father, we need you to communicate to us now the awesome reality of God in and through Christ Jesus strengthening his people. We need to feel what Paul felt in that moment when he says to Timothy with complete confidence, everyone left me. They all left me, but he didn't. Jesus never left me. We need to feel that, Father. We need to know who you are in your faithfulness. And so I pray that, that in every heart here, every heart that, my heart especially, every heart that can hear right now these words, that you would, Father, do a work in that heart to make that heart feel and know and love and delight in the gospel to such a degree, Jesus Christ to such a, such a, a scope and, and size that we are completely consumed by his reality and we will not be moved aside. We will not fall down. We will not uh, cave in. We will press on. We will endure. We will conquer in the end and we will be seated with Jesus Christ. I ask this in the name of Jesus alone. Amen.